This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas State Technical College has Texas covered. With 10 campuses across the state, students can learn the skills necessary to start a great new career. Learn more at tstc.edu. And Lone Star College works for Texas, providing real-world workforce training in state-of-the-art facilities to meet employers' demands. Find out more at lonestar.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for May 30th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics at the Texas Tribune. And we're here for a special post-signy die slash now first day of le special legislative session TribCast. Lawmakers had so much fun talking about Dade Phelan's abs and Ken Paxton's countertops that they decided to come back and do it a little bit more for 30 more days. And we've got a nice group here to talk about it. Um, I'm going to go down the line and introduce them. Uh, first, we have uh, Patrick Svitek, a polit politics reporter for the Tribune. Thank hey, you Patrick. Very much. I, sh I should correct you. It's actually the second day of the special session oh, yeah. already because it's technically started at 9 o'clock last right. night. That's right. Already already running corrections. Off to a great start here. And then we got uh, to, to Patrick's left, um, Brad Johnson, a senior reporter for The Texan. Hey, Brad. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. And then to his left, we have Renzo Downey, the lead writer of The Blast, the Tribune's uh, insider politics newsletter. Uh, if you're not familiar with The Blast, I'd recommend you check it out. He's been doing great work over this past session, kind of digging into the details of every day of the legislative session. And he just found out he'll be doing it for maybe 29, 30 more days. So, hey, Renzo. Hey, morning. And we have demographics reporter and longtime legislative watcher, uh, Alexa Uda. Hey, Alexa. That just makes me sound old. <laughs> Though I will point out, special session number one, yeah. well, according I feel to the governor's too. email. This this session aged me about 10 years, so I think we all feel old, um, whether we are or not, yes. So it was a wild legislative session um, featuring a lot of, you know, major bills that will impact the lives of Texans. You know, some that I've, I've written down as highlights, bills to ban puberty blockers and hormone treatments for transgender children, um, you know, loans to upgrade or build new gas-fueled power plants, uh, make voting ineligible, um, voting while ineligible, uh, punishable as a felony, eliminating uh, DEI offices on college campuses, toughening um, penalties for people who sell fentanyl. We had some, you know, kind of, uh, you know, major financial uh, allotments done, you know, $3 billion endowment to fund public universities, $1 billion for water infrastructure improvements, $1.5 billion for broadband access. Community colleges saw their um, funding mechanisms changed. So a lot of things that happened this session. But really, on the last weekend, oh, yeah, and our attorney general was indicted, in case you missed that as well. So that was a big one. Impeached, sorry, yes. <laughs> and exactly. And, and we also, but you know, the last weekend, at least the last day, really focused on what didn't happen. And that was a deal on a border bill, um, something you would have thought, you know, Republicans in this state would have been able to rally around. And maybe something you would think they would be able to rally around even more is a deal on property taxes. And that is why we are here today getting ready, you know, some of us to go back into the Capitol for that special session where Governor Abbott has called them back to consider property taxes and um, a, a border security initiative. Patrick. How is it possible? What happened in that crazy day that they could not get a deal on cutting taxes? I thought 
Republicans love to cut taxes. Right. I mean, as you pointed out, going into this legislative session, um, all of the big three, the, you know, the governor, lieutenant governor, the speaker, all agreed that property tax relief um, was a top priority for this session, if not the number one priority. And so it is pretty stunning that they ultimately uh, could not come together on some compromise. And I think the fact that they were holding out hope um, for a deal in really the final you know, hours of this session, even on the last day of the session, when you typically don't see deal-making on big priority issues, I think that underscored their desperation um, to get something done because they knew um, how bad it looked that they'd be, you know, if they were to walk away from this regular session without a compromise. And uh, I know that their, Brad and some other reporters maybe followed the specific policy details um, a little clo closer in recent days and throughout the session. Uh, but to me, it just seems like the House and Senate fundamentally weren't able to solve um, this difference of opinion on the best way to deliver property tax relief. The House wanted to tighten appraisal caps. Um, the Senate wanted to increase the homestead exemption. Um, the House, you know, later in the session, you know, showed openness to increasing the homestead exemption. Um, but I think the appraisal caps, you know, still were a sticking point. So um, it just seems like really the, the issue that divided them on property taxes for months uh, continued to divide them up until the last minute. Brad, I'm an, I'm an optimist. I was, you know, watching the feeds yesterday thinking they're going to figure this out. They're going to figure this out. Um, they never figured it out. How close did they get, do you think? I thought they were going to figure it out, too. Um, I was hoping that we wouldn't be here today having to go back to the Capitol, at least get a bit of a break. Um, I, in hindsight, I don't know if they were really that close because the House really wanted the appraisal cap reduction and extension. The Senate and Lieutenant Governor Patrick said that was a total non-starter from the beginning. Uh, there was a report that there was a meeting between the governor, lieutenant governor, uh, and the speaker about a comprehensive plan that include compression, um, homestead exemption, the Senate's original proposed homestead exemption, and then a 7.5% appraisal cap. Um, the lieutenant governor apparently wanted to raise that to 8%. The speaker would not budge um, after already budging from 5% to 7.5%, and thus talks broke down. And so uh, now entering the special session, the governor has specifically said, oh, compression is it. That's all we're going to do. So now we're basically back to square one. This whole fight over appraisal caps was all for naught. And now, at least if the governor gets his way, we are going to have uh, just all of this money you know, between 16 and $20 billion, depending on how much they actually want to put towards this, uh, just to rate compression. And there are arguments, um, especially from the, uh, the more right wing of the Republican Party, that that is the only way to do things uh, because it is the only way that actually puts downward pressure on property tax bills for everybody, whether it's home, uh, people that own, own homes or commercial uh, properties. And so um, I, I don't know how things are going to shake out. Somebody's going to have to give on something or they're just going to have to throw it all away and go with compression, which... That's kind of what it looks like right now. Alexa, you and I sometimes look back at the 2017 session where uh, the bathroom bill was the big issue. And we talk about that one day in the Capitol where there were the dueling press conferences. And I believe it was you running back and forth between the two sides of the Capitol to hear, you know, Dan Patrick and Joe Strauss kind of trash each other, you know, in front of the microphones and everything like that. This time, 
It was dueling tweets, I guess. You know, they were they were tweeting uh, out their proposals, negotiating via social media, which um, is never an encouraging sign. Um, it's interesting to me looking back at that 2017 session where you saw a similar kind of back and forth, it falling apart, it going to a special session, that being on a big kind of social issue. This session, the big social issue fight was cleared up, you know, fairly easily and early in the session. And property taxes, the, the kitchen table issue is the one that goes to the end. Is that just a result of the changing dynamics of the legislature? What's going on here? You know, I was I was looking back on that dueling night of press conferences when many of us left the Capitol at 11 p.m. and kind of wondered what we were doing with our lives. And it was... That, that hasn't changed. <laughs> that's true. Uh, but it was actually, it was Friday, was six years to the day of that, which was an eventful day in many other ways this time around. But I remember thinking back to that night and thinking that there probably wasn't much more room for the dynamics between the speaker and the lieutenant governor to become more heated or, or more pitched than it was at that time, and particularly that night, where they were so clearly and openly kind of sniping at each other, but still kind of doing it through legislation, right? It was still a little bit more tied to the specifics of the bill, a little bit less so about personalities. There was no you know, California Dade um, at the time. There was no mention of anyone's abs at the time. And it, it was just sort of, it, but I remember thinking like, it can't get much worse than this, can it? And I think this session has, you know, I think Speaker Phelan said, "Get, I'm coming through, get out of the way, and I'm gonna stand for what I want my chamber to push for. I think the question is, at the time, Speaker Strauss was very clearly trying to hold his members from taking a vote they didn't seem to want to take. It seemed like there was general consensus. That seems to be mostly the case on property taxes, but this time around, it, it feels like Speaker Phelan has taken a much more prominent role in the actual negotiating, whereas last time, Strauss sort of said, here's an alternative that we're willing to pitch we're not willing to negotiate at all on this. And that was sort of the end of it. This time, this sort of last day negotiating was pretty unusual, but I think also showed that it didn't actually matter that they were willing to negotiate because they were at odds the whole time anyway. Yeah, and, and the reason this was so kind of tense on this last day, usually the last day is sort of a ceremonial day. The, the rules say you can't pass bills. But the reason that that was a little bit different this time around was because this idea was so popular in the legislature that they had enough votes to suspend the rules and go around it. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, both of these, both chambers' version of the versions of these bills passed unanimously, or if not unanimously, then very close to unanimously. But they couldn't come together on something that was so popular to to kind of save this session. And so, Renzo, we go to a special session. You know, very uh, uh, you know. People were out having their signy die parties uh, last night, and you know uh, some of us were at one, and it was you know <laughs> it reminded me of a scene. Uh, now I'm going on a big tangent here, but on the show Downton Abbey, when they were at this lawn party, and the 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 patriarch of the family announces to everyone that uh, England has declared war and going into World War One. It's the same thing. Someone just shouts out. We're officially in a special session, and everyone just kind of groans and goes on from there. But what do you think changes in this now June special session? How do they come to some kind of agreement? We set reset the clock here, and what? Everyone 
someone gets less dug in than they were on the past 140 days? Yeah, well, it's you know definitely that reset, right? And also, you know, putting that compression guardrails on yeah. it, it really streamlines the uh, streamlines so, this process. I- explain that. So. What what, what did, how does how is this different? And what what do you mean by the compression guardrails? Yeah, well, now they kind of have like a you know their bullet point list of what they can address, yeah. right? And right. so you know they're not going to be able to go off and push their own agendas here, right? Yeah, so Patrick, this was a pretty, I think, uh, smart gambit by by Abbott. He, you know, in the special sessions, the governor determines what the lawmakers can and can discuss. It's not like the regular session where pretty much everything goes. And he set two items for the special session agenda, property taxes and border security. But for property taxes, I'm reading from his press release last night, legislation to cut property tax rates solely by reducing school district maximum compressed tax rate in order to provide lasting property tax relief for taxpayers. So basically, what we saw was an argument over appraisal caps or homestead exemptions. Here, he's basically saying, do it this other way, and let's take out these two items that y'all are, y'all are fighting about already. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty bold move. I mean, as we just acknowledged, you know, it eliminates the two proposals that were on the table that divided the House and Senate the most, the homestead exemption uh, and appraisal cap. And so um, we already saw the lieutenant governor say yesterday in one of his tweets um, you know, that it would be unacceptable to the Senate to have a special session on property taxes that only included um, compression. So you already have... Um, a divide between Abbott and Patrick and the Senate there. It seems like the House um, is more on board with a compression-only special session. I know we were all kind of tuning out yesterday, but I did see a, a, a top House uh, leader, Dustin Burroughs, tweet compression in all caps with an exclamation point. Um, so it seems like the House may be a little more uh, on board with that. Um, but, you know, it does put up a, a real meaningful guardrail now. Can I jump in on that? One an, one other interesting dynamic at play over this whole debate was within the business community. When Representative Morgan Meyer presented HB2, the House's original plan, you saw all these really big business organizations come out. TAB was one of them. Uh, I think TAM was there as well. And perf- state their preference for the Senate's homestead exemption-led uh, aspect of this. Now, the Senate also had a... a business side, the inventory tax credit, um, and a business personal property tax increase. But then during that same hearing, you saw smaller businesses come in and prefer the House's plan, uh, stating that they wanted to see a cap on their appraisals. As far as compression goes, I think that breakdown is probably no longer there, uh, because everybody will prefer the direct compression of rates. Um, but I suppose it's possible that we see another rift in the business community on that, depending on how things develop. Right. And the, and the way that you can use compression is basically because there's so much money in the state coffers right now, so, so much raised from tax revenue and everything like that, they're essentially able to take some of that, those dollars, put it towards school finance, use that money that would have otherwise come from property taxes, thus lowering the property tax rate um, in order uh, to do so. The other part of this is whatever they allocate, they have to be able to reallocate in two years. And so that raises a lot of very difficult questions. Are we going to have this even close to this record surplus that we did this time? That's an open question. I think the other part of this is that in 2017, when the House and the Senate were at odds over the bathroom bill, the House was very much fighting against something. 
this time around, they're both fighting for something. And I, I don't know about y'all, but the, the sort of legislating by Twitter that we saw yesterday didn't leave me much hope about where this could go, particularly when you think about the compressed timeline of a special, the increased attention on only one issue, and the involvement of the governor, who I think we can say historically has not been sort of the strongest hand legislatively, where we have had this pattern of legislative session, of special sessions, almost in every session he's been in charge of, that he's overseen as governor, rather. And so I think there's the, the dynamics of a special are always kind of weird. Everyone's upset that they're still here or had to come back. They'd rather be with their families. There's been all of this sort of public sniping and back and forth. There's the dynamic of they're both having to fight for something and someone's going to be seen as giving up on something in one way or another. I, I just think specials are a really weird legislative monster. And I'd, I'm not as hopeful as maybe others that they will actually reach a deal. I hope they prove me wrong, but I... I don't. I wouldn't sort of count on this being a like five day session in and out, and we've got a deal on this. I was I was a little surprised that he didn't kind of give them a cooling off period, which seemed like something maybe the lawmakers might have benefited from, even if it was just a week to just like go home, be with your family, forget about how mad you are about the person on the other side of the Capitol, and and kind of you know come fresh and and happy. But you know, Renzo, we're 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 diving diving right into it, right? So. What do we watch for in this debate? I mean, I, is there a, um, I mean, is, the, is there even really room for the, there to be that much disagreement here? Or is it mainly just about how much money do they want to spend on this? Yeah. yeah well, my impression would be that uh, they would try to hammer this out kind of the back room that they've been doing, right? And not come forward with proposal until they're, you know, maybe and present their initial plans, but then kind of the same process we've been having, everything plays out at, the top, at that top level. And uh, so it might be pretty quiet until we actually get to the end here. So the other big kind of Abbott priority that's, that's left out there, not on this special session agenda, but we expect it to be coming for another one, is school choice. It, um, not the same kind of drama this time around. It just sort of faded away. Uh, of course, we had the, the Senate kind of gambit where they attempted to attach it onto a broader school funding bill that would have included teacher raises and you know billions of dollars to the school districts. That obviously did not work. The House did not go for that. We're looking at possibly, you know, maybe later in the year, a, uh, a, a special session on that topic. But Patrick, I mean, I think the big question is, where where are the votes in the House going to materialize for something like this to pass? The, the House has had many opportunities to kind of state their feelings on this bill, and every time they've had the opportunity, they voted in a way to suggest that they do not like the idea of school choice. Yeah, we, we, we saw support for this grow in the House um, this session, but not in a way that, at least in my view, suggests that there's a surefire path to actually passing it off the floor. And so I think this is one of the issues for a special session that will require um, a serious regrouping by the governor's office and figuring out um, you know, basically how to, how to change that, that math. I mean, unlike with property taxes, um, you know, you know, property taxes, they all agree it's a priority. 
they're just you know fighting over the best way to do it. Uh, on this issue, I mean, you have widely divergent views within each chamber about whether it should even be done, period. So I mean, that is an issue that I think we all expect to be in a, a special session later this year, potentially a single issue special session later this year. Um, but I think that's one where the governor's office is really going to have to regroup and reconsider um, you know, its approach. Brad, how happy do you think Abbott is with the, how the session has gone so far? Well, looking back last night on where things all fell, only three of his emergency items actually passed. Um, and, you know, there are debates within the Republican Party itself on how sufficient those actually are. But um, nominally, the legislature passed three. Um, so that leaves four on the table still. I imagine he's pretty upset about that. Um, school choice is the big question mark. I think all the other stuff, um, if he decides to put it on um, on the special and we see property taxes and border on this one, I think there's a pretty clear path to getting something done. But he's put so much political capital into school choice. Um, you know, once, thing, once the rubber really meets the road on um, an actual vote in the Texas House on a school choice plan, because we haven't had that. We've had test votes. Uh, how much does Abbott push the envelope on moving maybe tentative uh, yeses to full yeses uh, in the House among Republicans or people that are on the fence to his side? Um, I don't know. We're, we're, we don't really know how much the governor, he, he wasn't on the House floor a lot this session. And so I, I would probably guess that once we get to that school choice special, he, he will be more present on this, especially for this issue, because it has been such a pet project for him. And I will say just broadly looking over the past several sessions, the House has always kind of been, um, uh, you know, bedeviling to Abbott. Um, and he's tried many different tactics already to try to um, exert more influence on the House. You know, he's played the inside game, you know, having private meetings with lawmakers and private small group meetings with lawmakers in the House. He's played the outside game, you know, trying to campaign against, you know, uh, campaign against members who don't get along with his agenda. Um, you know, the big tactic this session was to go to individual state house districts and hold these public rallies with parents advocating for education savings accounts. And so I think that's very pessimistic for Abbott going forward in that, you know, he's had this very, I think, complex and strained relationship with the House uh, for, for many years now. And he's tried a lot. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what other trick could be in his toolbox to try to um, gain more influence with these House uh, Republican members whose votes he needs um, for this kind of a plan on, on vouchers. I think the other component is that these folks have to go back home and defend these votes, right? And you could argue maybe having the governor as a sort of forceful endorsement of, of a member would give them some cover going back and, and you know the financial support he can provide during campaigning season. But I, I'm not sure that that has emerged as sort of a way to maybe entice folks to come over to his side on, on some of these issues. He's an incredibly popular governor with Republican voters. And so you could argue there's quite a bit of sway he could do in supporting some of these members, but they would have to 
if that offer were made, they'd obviously have to trust that he'd follow through on that. And I think there have been instances in the past, I think it was the pre-K funding from way back when, where folks maybe didn't feel as supported by him as they, they thought they would. So it's, it's a complex setup for him when he's trying to get these votes. And we also have, you know, um, uh, people in this realm who are really supportive of this idea, who are willing to spend money and maybe back potential primary challengers. There are members of the House who might already be worried about some push from the right based on their vote on impeachment. Um, you know, there are some levers to, you know, maybe not even Abbott specifically or Abbott, you know, e explicitly, but for folks who are supporting this to try to kind of put some pressure on these lawmakers in the, the next few months if, if we do indeed get a fall special session on this topic. I mean, the other thing, you know, you and I, Patrick, have talked about this before, the idea of like, does he, is there another kind of shoe to drop in terms of a leverage play here? We all remember in 2021 when Democrats broke quorum uh, to stop the voting bill, he vetoed the legislature's funding in the budget with a line item veto, kind of forcing them to come back you know, that's a, a little bit harder of a move to defend if you're doing it around like school funding or something. But is there some kind of, you know, thing that we're not even thinking about right now, seeing right now that he might be able to pull to try to kind of, you know, kind of turn up the pressure on these folks? I guess I guess we'll see what happens. I, mean, I can't speculate what it is, but it is true that Abbott is a governor who has been uh, tried to get very creative with deploying his executive power when it comes to legislative um, log jams or controversies. So whether it's, uh, you know, the veto power, bully pulpit power, um, or just the, we just, I mean, we kind of just saw an instance of it last night where th through his power to call a special session and set a specific agenda, he set an agenda on property taxes uh, that eliminated, that took off the table two of the most uh, divisive proposals that were dividing the House and Senate. So. I can't speculate what it is, but it is true that Abbott, um, you know, when confronted with these legislative uh, crises before, um, has tried to use his executive power creatively and, and aggressively. Alexa, how are the Democrats feeling after this session? You know, I think when you when you look back to the end of last session with the quorum break that came the, the Sunday before Sine Die, and then obviously they were gone for, for quite a bit of time, there, there. I think it's still an open question how successful that even was to their end, right? Obviously, the voting bill was going to pass either way. They sort of put their um, confidence that Congress was going to act in some way or another, and then they didn't, and it was all sort of for naught. Then they come back this session after redistricting, and they don't have any gains. They don't have a whole lot of power. And so I, I think that if you look at the session as a whole, there were some big moments for them where they used the procedural rules, particularly in the House, uh, to bring down legislation. You could argue that HB 7, the, the Border Enforcement Task Force, uh, going down, not, not ultimately being passed, uh, is a big win for them. I think they would probably all would say that. I thought it was notable that the item on the, on the governor's special session agenda is, is a pretty... Uh, I wouldn't know how to characterize it. I guess it's a pretty simple measure compared to what some Republicans were after this session. But I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I think that it depends on how you sort of measure success if you're a Democrat in the Texas legislature. Um, they definitely were able to keep 
at least one big priority item, that doesn't mean it won't come back though, right? And so whether that win is sort of temporary, we'll, we'll have to wait and find out. But you know, when you are so outnumbered, and I think this was a session that sort of reminded us that when you are so outnumbered, even when you are able to defeat things like they originally did on the border bill, it come, they came back and just added it to another bill, right? And so it's, it's sort of a, you always have to be sort of measured in, in deciding whether the Democrats had any sort of big wins or not, especially when you're so outnumbered. I'll add there, the problem, you know, they, I think they had some procedural, definitely had procedural wins, like you said. I think there, there were some substantive wins too, like with the, the legislation to extend um, postpartum Medicaid coverage for up to a year. Um, that was something that failed last time brought it, you know, the House brought it back this time, feeling pretty vocally championed it, and it, it got across the finish line. And so um, I think they had some procedural wins, but also some substantive, you know, some uh, actual legislation getting passed. They sure, to, absolutely. Yeah. But they can't really do it without at least of, getting... Of course, in that case, I mean, feeling support was probably pivotal. All right, let's talk about impeachment. This, we're not even a week, I don't think, from when we found out that the House General Investigating Committee had been looking into um, uh, Ken Paxton, you know, matter A, as it had been called up until that point, some of us assumed that that was a completely different matter, um, a, such a dramatic moment when it was revealed that it happened. Leading up to Saturday, a uh, historic vote uh, in the House to impeach Renzo, you were, I believe, in the Capitol that day. What, what, do you, what stood out to you about the vote on Saturday? Yeah, well, I mean, House leadership, they seemed pretty certain that they had the votes. And while you know, some of those speeches that were happening on the floor made some folks wonder, hey, you know, maybe uh, there's some break here. You saw you know, moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats, them you know, either voting against impeachment, uh, Harold Dutton, Democrat, the president not voting. Uh, and so it seemed like the tide was kind of shifting for a moment there, but then when the votes dropped, I mean, it was pretty resounding. Uh, 121 members of the House saying, you know, uh, Ken Paxton uh, needs to, you know, go to the Senate trial. So, I, I mean, it, it was pretty dramatic to hear it all laid out there before members. I mean, it was all things that had been in, in the news for years, but to hear, you know, each member of that committee lay out, you know, the timeline, uh, what, you know, potential laws were violated here. Um, it, it was, you know, bringing props as well. <laughs> it was uh, a fascinating, you know, four, five hours uh, on the House floor. Yeah, I will say, you know, as someone who watched this, it was, of course, shocking, stunning to see that this investigation was going on. Um, my kind of assumption as they kind of continued to go through with this is that they wouldn't have gone through with it unless they were pretty confident that they had the votes to get it done. Um, so it passes through, you know, they unveil, unveil the details of their investigation. Uh, the, the GI committee votes out, recommends um, impeachment. We're, we're moving forward. And then the morning of the vote on Saturday, Ted Cruz comes out against it. Um, and then I think in the uh, first few minutes, maybe of the debate, maybe a couple, I can't, the exact timeline I'm not sure on, but Trump puts on his uh, social media. About a half hour before. About a half hour before, 
uh, that he's opposed to it. And so then you're starting to think, huh, okay. Then we see these debates go on. There is a lot of kind of, you know, I thought fairly effective arguments by the opponents about the questions of due process, how, you know, whether this was kind of rushed and sloppily put together. You see Travis Clardy come up and speak against it. Okay, that's interesting. You see Dutton come up and sort of speak against it. Dutton, a Democrat. Okay. And, you know, I kind of lose my confidence here. Like, is this actually going to happen? Maybe, maybe this is going to fall apart. Um, you know, I had felt like this seemed like such a sure thing up until about the last 15 minutes. And then they hold the vote and it's 121 to, to what, 20? 23. 23, yeah. A resounding kind of margin there. Brad, I mean, one thing that I was just really struck by was the confidence of Murr, of I would put Phelan in this, to kind of bring this to the floor and to see it pass by such a wide margin was I thought just was a kind of striking show of how much control he has wielded over this cham chamber, the confidence he's had in this chamber to bring something like that forward at such a quick time. Well, I think the it was always going to pass. You know, you, there's um, what sixty four Democrats in in the House. So the delta there to get a majority for impeachment, for recommending impeachment, is 11 Republicans because Slayton is no the Slayton seat is is empty. So it, the question was just how close to 140 can we get? And I think we saw I know there were members that um, you know were entered the day at least leaning for impeachment who ultimately did not because they were convinced by especially the the representative John Smithy speech about exactly what you said, due process, was this rushed at all? Um, is there enough question here f to warrant voting against this? And um, you know, th that's going to spark a pretty serious uh, backlash against um, Republican members who ended up voting yes. We're already seeing the messaging out there um, about primaries and specifically this was a democrat-led impeachment 61 democrats voted for 60 republicans voted for so that's going to be put on mailers you can guarantee that um but i think as the the big question of does this impeachment go the full distance is always has always been in the senate the house is no fan of ken paxton uh, its membership is not is no fan of him by large by and large part um and it really wasn't, they didn't need to get a lot of Republicans on board in order for this to move on. But it was, I think they could have had more votes. The numbers I was hearing uh, going into it were maybe up to 130, maybe 135 votes. Obviously, it didn't quite get to that point. Um, and that is in large part because of the questions raised by Representative John Smithy, Travis Clardy, uh, Matt Schaefer, and... I think it, um, Republic, Republican leadership could have uh, solidified up many of those no votes if they had maybe not done it, announced it the week of uh, the, the impeachment vote. Patrick, we knew, we've known basically, you know, since right after he was elect elected that Ken Paxson had been under indictment for securities fraud, felony indictment. We've known since 2020 that his top deputies have accused him of bribery, of an inappropriate relationship with uh, Nate Paul, an Austin developer. 
Um, none of this was new. None of this, every, all of, pretty much all of this, there were a few things, homestead exemptions that he, you know, may have had on two houses, but, you know, the, the meat of this impeachment, everything was known during the 2021 session. Why was this rushed? Why, why did we end up doing this in one week, you know, at the end of the session? Why, I, I mean, the question, I guess, is why now? Why is this finally kind of coming well, out? Well, I mean, in, in the words of House leadership, you know, they're insisting that this was caused by his uh, taxpayer-funded settlement with the whistleblowers that he pursued with the legislature earlier this year. As part of that process, he had to come to the legislature and ask them to authorize the use of uh, state funds to pay for that settlement. Um, the legislature, including the Speaker Dade Phelan, almost immediately balked at that request, you know, expressing unease with using taxpayer dollars to, um, you know, settle this matter. And so basically the House has said, you know, that gave us the opening to further scrutinize uh, this range of issues around, you know, that led up to, um, you know, the, the settlement itself. Um, so, you know, that is their public account of, of why they chose, uh, of why, you know, um, we got to this point, um, you know, but they clearly, as far as I know, there's nothing in the law that says that they have to, you know, conduct this level of an investigation that leads to articles of impeachment. Um, you know, I think they clearly seized a jurisdictional opening to try to um, hold this member of their uh, party accountable once and for all. Um, and as we've said, he's you know already very unpopular in the Texas House. He you know was a, a former member of the Texas House. He was part of the rabble rousing you know wing of the Texas House when he was there. Um, you know, and has continued, I think, n not to be a popular figure among the ranks of Texas House Republicans. And so, like I said, I mean, I think they, they seized a jurisdictional and oversight opportunity uh, to move forward with something, you know, pretty, pretty striking. House members have, have kind of taken pains to make clear that, you know, this is a political process. They have, I've seen kind of the, the words, the statement a few times since the vote and even before the vote, this is not about punishing Ken Paxson, it's about protecting the state of Texas. Um, but it goes to the Senate where it is a more kind of formal trial, right? Alexa, help us game out what this looks like in the Senate. Is there any chance of the Senate actually voting to convict in this? I think it's really hard to even predict given the sort of untreaded waters we are in right now. Uh, I think by default you might think, okay, well the Senate is more conservative. You know, there were the same people who were raising issues about due process and how quickly it went in the House were hoping that the Senate would almost do this immediately and quickly and get through it very, very quickly, uh, which I found sort of an interesting and, and kind of opposing arguments even within themselves. But I don't think you can look at the Senate and not see that there maybe are allies or people who maybe at least might be more aligned with the sort of Paxton faction of the Republican Party and then with him personally as well. And obviously there is the component of Senator Angela Paxton being in, in the chamber and questions about will she recuse herself from the process? Does the law even allow for that? And if she does, what does that do for his margins in terms of that two-thirds vote he's going to be up against at the end of all of this? I mean, it's 
we are we are headed into a lot of unknowns. I think there's a lot about the Senate that works sort of really theatrically. Like everything is almost scripted. There's not a vote that comes up without the lieutenant governor being almost sure of what that vote is. They don't even do the whole roll call because they already know the votes before they even cast them in some ways. And so it, it will be though an opening for the Senate to you know possibly even go off script. In, in the contrast to how the chamber usually operates. And I guess the question is how much room is there for some tension and, and maybe some surprises there as they take up this matter? Dan Patrick, you know, in, in the comments prior to this event, he's, he's actually giving a uh, kind of talk right now. So I don't know, Patrick, have you, have you seen? All right. Yeah, mostly been criticizing the speaker. Yeah. No news. So yeah, uh, exactly. Um, but you know, so the comments that he has given have have largely been, you know, we're going to be fair and all this and everything like that. I mean, where do, how do Dan Patrick and also Greg Abbott kind of fit into this? You know, during the trial, in the run up to the trial, both politically and just in, in terms of Paxton's future. Uh, well, Patrick doesn't have a vote in the in the Senate trial, but it is true that um, he wields tremendous influence with the entire chamber and especially with the Republicans in the chamber. And so I do think that Republican senators, whether privately or publicly, um, you know, maybe not looking to, but would be receptive to cues from the lieutenant governor um, about his views on this. And so, you know, I think he looms large just because of his, his influence over the body, uh, just, just politically, not constitutionally in this case. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and where Abbott stands um, on this is, uh, you know, he's been totally silent on this matter ever since it came up, hasn't commented on it at all. Um, under the Constitution, he has the choice um, to appoint a temporary interim uh, attorney general in this instance. He has so far not announced any appointment, um, and that appointment is fraught with all kinds of political considerations. Um, because under the Constitution, it's just a choice he has, he's not required to do it, he could be viewed as putting his finger on the scale just by the act of appointing someone. You know, I think that I saw, um, you know, some chatter from Paxton supporters on Saturday, or Saturday that, you know, if Abbott does choose to appoint a, a temporary AG, they view that as basically, um, you know, an endorsement of the impeachment in some ways. Um, so it's really politically tricky for him. Um, and while, you know, we're pressing him for answers and trying our best, uh, you know, the political, you know, just speaking in terms of politics right now, the incentive for him to get involved in this right now is, is pretty low. All right, we're getting close to the time where um, folks can ask questions if they have them. We've got a microphone up here. But while we're waiting on that, Renzo, I just want to ask to... Do you think the focus on this in the last week played a role at all in hampering the ability to get some of these other priorities done? Did it distract or, or take up time that might have been spent getting, for instance, property taxes across? Yeah, I, I think there's potential. Um, I think there's some you know, possibility of that early on that like, hey, there might be some tit for tat here. Uh, you might see some House priorities go down. You might see some Senate priorities go down, depending on how this timeline plays out, but ultimately, uh, I mean, it took up, you know, 48 hours. Uh, I, I'm not sure 48 hours really made the difference over the course of this session. Uh, and I mean, 
Yeah, ultimately, I, I don't think it, I think everything was kind of set in stone. Nothing was really going to budge uh, beyond what it did. All right, very good. Hi, everyone. I'm Sewell Chan with the Texas Tribune. Thank you all so much for coming, and welcome, Brad. Thanks for joining us. Of all the issues that got, of all the legislation that got passed during this session, which do you think will actually have the most impact on the lives of Texas's 30 million people, and in what ways? Um, I think the biggest one will be uh, HB 2127, the preemption bill. Um, you know, there's a long-running feud between municipalities, especially the big blue ones in the Republican state legislature. Um, you know, the, the state created these municipalities, and so Republicans in the legislature uh, have the viewpoint that what they gave, they can take away. And especially in regards to a lot of these very progressive regulations that are passed in Dallas, Austin, Houston, San Antonio. And the GOP legislature is tired of, you know, swatting down each one individually. And so they've taken this field preemption approach. Now, on the flip side, these municipalities believe it is a, um, a breach of their local control, their ability to run their own affairs. And that debate will not end. It has gone on forever. Um, you know, even when parties were flipped, generally, and uh, the Democrats controlled the legislature, there's just always that natural tension um, because local officials want to do what they want to do, and the state legislature wants to do what it wants to do. So that one will really have an effect on the everyday lives of Texans, whichever way you fall on, on the merits of the issue. Um, these local regulations impact uh, businesses, a lot more um, pointedly than, say, just broader state policy does. Um, but now, those regulations in nine sections of code. Let's remember, it's not the entire, the entire code. Now have to be in line with what the state legislature lays out. So um, it, that was a pretty big uh, changing of the guard in the way we approach this local government versus state government issue. I would also just add the budget, you know, of course, that's kind of an obvious and not very fun answer, but, you know, spending, you know, those those uh, billions of dollars uh, will impact uh, things across. But, you know, the, some of the things I mentioned at the beginning, the $3 billion towards uh, public university endowments at, at, at the non kind of UT and A&M kind of uh, system flagship schools, the you know, $1.5 billion to expand broadband access, $1.1 billion on water infrastructure improvements, the, the um, changing how we fund community colleges um, will have real world impacts. I think there are questions, you know, those, those dollars aren't going to cover every need to, you know, get everyone broadband access in the state or, or protect our water infrastructure fully to the extent that it needs, but it's a very significant investment and one that you know, sort of kind of went under the radar um, because there wasn't as much fighting about it, right? There was um, people, you know, in both parties broadly supportive of it and, you know, a considerable amount of money to go around to help pay for those things at this time. All right, we have another question here. Yeah, hi all, my name's Claire. I'd be curious to hear more about gun violence in Texas. Uvalde just celebrated their, well not celebrated, marked their one year anniversary of the Robb Elementary shooting, Santa Fe the five year shooting at the high school. We had the Allen shooting. 
what did or didn't happen? And do you think Governor Abbott would ever call a special session to address gun violence in Texas? Or what, what would it take for that to happen? I think going into the session, we knew that politically, um, you know, the prospects uh, for proposals to, um, you know, offer new gun restrictions is pretty bleak. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for people for pushing for that, um, I think their expectations were met this session. I think they did have a huge win, um, again, that didn't result in legislation getting across the finish line. But I think everyone uh, on this stage was probably surprised when the House committee voted out the proposal to raise the age for certain um, assault-style uh, rifles. Uh, I think that came, I don't know, final two months of the session or something like that. Um, you know, but of course, to people pushing for change, um, that wasn't the passage of legislation. That was just more or less a procedural victory. And so, um, you know, I, I do think that uh, the, the legislature, again, um, declined to heed the calls for new restrictions uh, on guns and whether Abbott will would ever call a special session on that, I, I don't think that's that's likely. He's repeatedly resisted um, those calls over the years. Um, so you know they're they're going to continue to do what they did this past session, which is focus on the concept of what they call school safety, which is providing more funds to uh, harden schools, um, to have uh, armed security on campuses. Um, you know, and to focus uh, on increasing mental health resources at schools. I, I expect that to be, that was the main approach this session, and I expect that to be the approach going forward to the extent there is an approach. One of the big reasons why the Republican legislature, other than just opposing a raise the age in idea, uh, for them passing legislation is the courts, court, recent court rulings are very much against uh, that possibility. Um, we saw the constitutional carry law uh, that was originally limited only to 21 and up, but a ruling in a, a district court in Texas said that um, that has to be extended to all adults, 18 and up. So the same dynamic is at play there. Now you have a conservative Supreme Court, so if that issue were to ever get all the way up there, um, its chances are slim to none, I think. But uh, Representative Dustin Burroughs, when asked about it, Governor Abbott, when asked about it, um, cited that the court rulings as a really big reason why it's just a non-starter to them. You know, we did not see a aggressive expansion of gun rights this session, you know, and maybe that's because they've kind of run out of things to do, but you know, in, in 2021, we had the permitless carry, which was a big major, we, we've, we've had um, campus carry in recent years too. Like it did seem that we used to have a big gun bill every session. And again, like maybe there's there's not any more meat left on that bone, but um, we didn't really see any kind of major legislation along Yeah, I mean, lines. two points on that. I, 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 there's not much left to do. And if you look at the national conversation, what you know, gun rights advocates are pushing for, Texas has at this point done most of it. Um, of course, there's groups that can always find ways to push the envelope, but I think there's not much left to do. And number two, uh, Republican leaders in Texas know that it's uh, politically uh, an unpopular issue. It's why you saw Abbott try to avoid the issue of guns as much as possible in his uh, re-election campaign last year. They see the same uh, polling that you and I can see uh, internally, and, and they see that it's it's not a winning issue for them. And so, um, you know, that that's I think that's why we you know the conversation was so limited this session. Yeah, I was going to say, I, th I think one of the hardest things about the legislature is that Texans make a lot of effort to come up to the Capitol. And I, I, 
and to make themselves heard, to ask for specific things. And very often, not just on this issue, the legislature votes against what the majority of people who come to the Capitol ask for. They often vote against the, what the majority of public poll, of public opinion might show. And it's, it's tough because it's, it takes a lot out of folks. And I can imagine for the parents of the Osuvalde children, it was a particularly tough thing to go through to come up and know that maybe it's not actually going to change. But I think at the end of the day, for a lot of these folks, it comes down to the politics. And a lot of these districts are drawn to where the only thing that matters are primary elections. And this is an issue that very clearly, at least among primary voters, is, is a bit of a non-starter for now. Yeah, and I, I do think that you know the decision to put the armed guard requirement back into the school safety bill, which happened this weekend, was a, a pretty significant development. You know, that had been something that had been proposed in the House, taken out in the Senate, but 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 put back in, um, you know, in conference committee and in, in, in the final version, which I think is you know clearly a, a pretty notable development. There, let's go to our next question. Hi, Jennifer. I am just kind of curious. Why is the Capitol so obsessed with Houston? Whether it's HISD takeover and our elections. Who wants to take that? Alexa, you know a lot about the voting areas here. Let's go to you there. Um, Houston, I think, is sort of, Houston and Harris County more broadly are, I think, in a lot of ways, the sort of epicenter of some of the political tensions in, in the state. Uh, it wasn't, you know, we saw this week during the impeachment debate that opponents were trying to sort of frame these prosecutors and this investigative team as sort of Harris County Democrats, when in reality, most of them worked under DAs when the county was still Republican not that long ago. I think Harris County used to be a red and then a purple and now a blue, and it sort of represents this political, these political waves that I think it's safe to say Republicans are watching for. You know, we saw it in the last round of redistricting how hard they went to sort of correct some of these suburban districts around the big urban areas that were also starting to change, where they were trying to hold back some of that and really short up a bunch of districts that were starting to run away from them. And so I think Harris County just often tends to be sort of the epicenter of that. I think it also doesn't help that there have there are sort of easy people to oppose in Harris County, the dynamics around elections and, and some of the you know actual screw-ups that have taken place in some of that administration also makes them an easy target in, in a lot of ways where maybe other counties are able to fly under the radar um, a little bit more. Just they don't have, they're just not a, a, as easy of a target in, in that way. I think the immediate response to that question is look at the screw-ups that happened in the recent election um, something as simple as running out of paper at precincts, you know, that's, they fumbled the ball on that and they gave the Republicans and the legislature who've wanted to reform uh, specifically Harris County elections for a long time some ammo. And uh, they have taken it and run with it. Um, you know, part of it is it's the largest uh, locality in the state and running an election for, what is it, 2.3 million people is very difficult. Um, but there have been a lot of a lot of instances of the officials there stepping on rakes and causing problems for themselves that has then led to um, ammunition these state legislators have used against them. All right, one last question. 
Great. I'm Erin Shank from Waco, Texas. I wanted to go back to the local control uh, question we were talking about. It's a group of citizens in my hometown, Waco, that are interested in approaching the city council about an anti-discrimination ordinance for all folks, uh, you know, race, religion, gender, et cetera. And I wonder what you thought the impact of that would be vis-a-vis -vis what they passed. Um, I've actually advised the group to wait until we see what the governor signs because then uh, we can may have a more clear picture. But what do you think what they've passed will have, uh, what impact will it have on, uh, on anti-discrimination, local uh, ordinances that are requested for anti-discrimination? Zach, do you know if that's, if that's part of HB 2127? Do we, any of us know? I think there was a discrimination amendment added, but I, I cannot recall if it was left in from the conference committee. So. Yeah, it, it may be, I mean, HB 2127 is definitely the, the bill that you wanna be watching. That's the one that's reaching the governor's desk and uh, creates um, a bunch of new broad categories of, of preemption. And it, it could um, mention this or could you know be used um, to try to prevent something like this. So I think we don't have all the details on that, but that would definitely be the piece of legislation um, to keep watching. To keep watching. I'm not aware of anything else that is reaching the governor's desk as of now that may that may address something like this. Okay, well, I'll keep an eye on it. Thank you. All right, so that is about all the time we have. So thank you to our panelists up here. Thank you to those in the audience who came out and joined us. And we will we you know a lot more legislative developments to watch. So check out uh, the Texas Tribune. Uh, check out check out Brad's reporting of the Texan, and keep listening to the Tripcast for more updates. Thanks, everybody. major sponsor for today's live Tribcast is Raise Your Hand Texas. No matter what an education voucher is called, the policy is the same. Vouchers divert public funds to private schools and vendors. More information at raiseyourhandtexas.org. Get ready to explore the latest in politics, public policy, and the media with the lawmakers and thought leaders making the news at the Texas Tribune Festival, happening September 21st through the 23rd in downtown Austin. Discounted tickets are on sale now through May 31st at tribfest.org.